I'm your host, Nita Valens, and it's a very special day because this is where we talk about health and spirituality. And we used to have another edition of InterVision on Fridays. It used to be hosted by my friend and fabulous colleague, Michael Benner, who's joining us by phone from Hawaii. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning, or it's actually still morning here. Good afternoon and aloha, Nita. Thank you. Aloha. I have lots of people wanting to say hello to you today. Christine, oh. Ali, just to mention a few, and uh, I won't even go there yet. But here's what I want to say about you. You were, uh, before you moved to Hawaii, you were all over the dial in Los Angeles for over 30 years. And to people who may be new listeners and not know about you, do you want to say a little bit about your background? Well, um, that was radio, uh, talk shows, and news was my living for, gosh, 30-some years. And uh, after working in Detroit right out of college, I came to Los Angeles in the mid-'70s. A lot of people heard me on KLOS. I was there for a little over a decade. Also worked at KABC, KCBS-FM, which was called Arrow back in the day. I worked, um, if you go back far enough, at a radio station called K-West. <laughs> that goes back to the late 70s. I was at uh, KLSX doing a talk show and, uh, of course, for 14 years volunteered at KPFK. And that was really, in many ways, the best part of my career because I was commercial-free and I loved the people I was working with. I Never had to worry about the sales manager kicking in the door and complaining <laughs> about how liberal my my <laughs> my programs were. Well, that's pretty funny. Well, today we're going to uh, take calls uh, most of the hour on 818-985-5735. We'll be talking about self-discovery and personal development. And I'm going to just toss out a few questions for us to talk about and for people to consider when phoning in today. Who are you? How do you know yourself? And if you feel stuck on either of these two questions, you really want to listen today because Michael has all the answers. <laughs> How's that for a nice setup? So I have a lot of good questions. I yeah. don't know about the answers. I know. I knew you were going to say that. We always used to talk about that, you and I, when you were here. In the old days when we were on late at night uh, and we would come in and chat. Yep. And I want to start with uh, asking you a question. Can we know ourselves without knowing a God or a higher power or something bigger than us? Well, that's a wonderful question. Boy, you caught me off guard. It begs the idea of a trinity, actually, that is found in all religions, not just in the Christian religion do we have a trinity, but in... um, Jewish mysticism, there's Kether, Kakhma, and Bana. In Islam, there is a trinity of the beloved, the love, and the lover. In Eastern philosophy, there is a number of trinities. And the 
threeness of things. Sometimes in Buddhism we talk about the middle way or the third way. The threeness of things is very important because I would argue, Nita, that the truth of who we are really stands between God and man, stands in the middle between spirit and matter. That consciousness, and this is the mystery of mysticism, I always say the mystery is in the middle and the secret is in the center. We are certainly more than our ego, the part of us that identifies with the incarnated, separated form. We are certainly more than the ego would have us believe. And yet we're obviously not, any one of us, God in totality. So whether you call it soul or higher self or an elevated perspective, your better nature, your conscience, not only your consciousness, but how about conscience? Where does that come from? Even little children that have been poorly parented have this innate ability to know when they ought to be ashamed of themselves and and know right from wrong, even though they test. So I would say there's two parts to us within the ultimate unity that religious people call God. And if we take religion out of it, and we just talk about spirituality, how do we want to define that by saying, you know, this is spiritual or this is consciousness? Like, how, how can we make a separation? Lots of people are really offended by the idea of an organized religion. I was just in this conversation with someone this morning about this because... Her parents are trying to mush her into the new religion they've all converted to, and she goes with them to this location, and she just has a visceral negative reaction to the whole thing, and when she tries to ask questions about it, everyone gets upset with her. (laughs) Well, you know, Thoreau said, beware of any enterprise that requires new clothes. Uh, (laughs) I would say beware of any enterprise that is afraid of you asking questions. I think what offends people, uh, what puts people off increasingly from organized religion is the dogma and the elementary imagery, the fact that many people take religion literally when even Christ, speaking because we're in the United States and Western Hemisphere. Most people listening are Christian, so let's use that as an example. Christ went out of his way to say, don't take this stuff literally. In Matthew, he says, the reason I speak in parables and allegory and metaphor is you'd never understand me if I just said it straight out. So when I talk about having as much faith as this mustard seed and the mountain will go from here to there, He obviously didn't mean faith literally moves mountains. And so it is with so much of religion that people take literally. Like, what does the apple in the story of Adam and Eve represent? What is the snake a symbol of? These are questions that intelligent, loving, well-intentioned people are going to ask. And if religion resists answering it or 
putting the responsibility back on the individual and saying, well, why don't you tell me what your heart says about the meaning of that? Then we're going to see more and more people increasingly describing themselves as spiritual but not religious. I recently did a program on this that we podcast out from my website, Spiritual But Not Religious, and I found that Newsweek recently did a poll that discovered that 30% of American adults now describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. In other words, this literal dogma I can't handle, and yet I have a longing in my heart. I have an urge. I feel a kinship with all of life, and I can't deny that longing or that urge. So I'm spiritual, but I can't find a religion that's flexible enough for me. Yeah, I like how you said that, a religion that's flexible enough for me. I'm speaking with Michael Benner from Maui, who was uh, with me in the Intervision Strip at night for many, many years. And if you want to find Michael, you can go to theagelesswisdom.com. Is that the best site for them to go to? Yeah, that's exactly it. And uh, I often remind them that the T-H-E part is part of the URL, so it's the w's.theagelesswisdom.com, yeah. And when we talked yesterday, we thought that uh, we would take your calls and we would set sort of a framework for how you get to know yourself. And one of the words we tossed around was transpersonal. What does that mean? Well, trans, uh, the prefix, means across, uh, a span that moves from here to there and bridges two areas. So transpersonal could mean going across or through or beyond the part of us that we think of as personality to a higher nature, a better part of ourselves. So my understanding of transpersonal psychology is a psychology that is big enough to embrace altered states, expanded consciousness, a higher or expanded awareness of things uh, that goes beyond the five physical senses. To include that sixth sense, that all-important intuition that so few people ever really talk about, that schools are not respecting or honoring or training children to trust their intuition and to add that emotional intelligence to their logic so that not only do they have a deductive nature for science and math that goes general to specific, and breaks everything down. Logic is a good thing as far as it goes, but an intuitive nature to go from specific to general so that we can understand the overarching concepts and the bigger pictures of things. If we had that, we wouldn't despoil the environment, for example. We wouldn't believe that soot that goes up the smokestack or is pumped into the ocean just disappears. We we know that it's a closed system, that the environment is one thing. One of our weaknesses, essentially, is this difficulty or inability. And it's not really an inability. If people have the ability and the capacity. Maybe it's they haven't been exposed and therefore are unwilling to think 
in big concepts and overarching, all-embracing principles to get the what in Southern California we'd call the whole enchilada. <laughs> the gestalt, you know. Why is it that we uh, shy away from developing our intuition in our culture? Well, that's a great question again, because I believe it tends to be so personal and so subjective, and we're educated primarily about what we cannot do, what we should not do. The problem, maybe too simply said, maybe overstated, but one of the biggest problems we have with public education is teaching children the box within which they must live. And, again, an emphasis on what cannot be done and what will never be done. You're taught to stand in line, to toe the line, never draw outside the line. And so people's thinking and their whole reality is limited to deductive logic, which is subtractive, uh, take-apart thinking, general to specific. If you ask somebody in a restaurant, how are you deciding what you're going to have for lunch. They'll say, well, I look at the menu and I choose what I want. They're not aware that they're really eliminating what they do not want. Mm. Logical, deductive process of elimination to get down to two or three things and then they just, oh, what the hell, I'll have the chicken salad sandwich. And, uh, that's the way we're taught to think. That's the way math works. You factor things. And if you already have been given a menu or a universe of, of ideas from which to work and you just want to break it down, logic is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Be reasonable. Be rational. Be logical. But when we have many observed specifics needed and we need to induce an overarching concept or, or construct to fit all of these details into, we don't have the skill by and large. We've never been taught to use our emotional intelligence. And that's what intuition is. It's emotional intelligence. It's trusting the heart. The little catch here, however, is that people think of their emotions as contrary to their intelligence because disturbed emotions make you say stupid things and often act in crazy ways. So the secret to emotional intelligence is to calm the emotional nature, to breathe, to relax, uh, to feel safe, to quiet the mind and calm the emotions. And then what remains is so smart so wise and how many times have we heard others say or said to ourselves oh damn it i wish i would listen to myself i knew i should have done that and instead i went with the logic the reasonable thing to do if only i had trusted my intuition and when we are struggling with a decision for example i always think well is that my ego in the way? Is that my fear in the way? Is that something I'm thinking? Is it something I'm feeling? How, how do you sort it all out? Well, thoughts can be right or wrong. We've all taken tests. 
(laughs) (laughs) True statement. Something we thought was right turned out to be wrong. The idea that you cannot have a wrong feeling is really profound. And most people will live their whole lives and never hear anybody tell them that. That we can have feelings that indicate something is very wrong, but the feeling in and of itself is not incorrect. It could not be incorrect. The ego nature is always fear-based, and its job is to tell you what you do not want. But avoiding what you don't want is not a goal. It'll move you away from some horrible situation, but will not move you toward a satisfactory resolution, much less a peak outcome. In order to know what we do want, we need to quiet that ego, make it feel safe. You do that by closing your eyes, breathing, and letting go of muscular tension. Those three messages, Nita. My eyes are closed. My breathing is slow. My muscles are relaxed. Therefore, the brain says, he must be safe. She must be safe. And so the ego becomes quiet. And now you can hear the positive, love-based, intuitive voice, that still, small voice, that whisper sometimes, that says, this is what your heart is telling you to do. Do this. Go here. So we have to deliberately cause the brain, the subconscious mind, the egoic nature, to feel safe enough to be quiet (laughs) and allow that still, small, higher voice, that better, again, I think it's a spiritual self that comes in through the emotional nature the oversoul, if you will, to speak. And it's never wrong. <laughs> if you trust your heart, you cannot go wrong. If you trust your heart, you cannot go wrong. Okay, so then I love this part. I want to repeat this. How to quiet the ego. Close your eyes. Slow your breathing. Relax your muscles. It almost seems like your talking about meditation before you respond to that i want to let people know you can call the show anytime all hour and ask michael a question 818-985-5735 818-985-kpfk with me is michael benner in maui on maui and we're talking about consciousness discovery personal development whatever you want to ask in the realm of that transpersonal nature of things. 818-985-5735. Meditation. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It has other names. Some people call it prayer. Except again, prayer tends to be, as Jim Morrison said in that Doris song, petitioning God. <laughs> we, get, we get confused. We think God is Santa Claus, so we have a list. Uh, hey, God, uh, I know you're confused about the way to run the universe, so I have a little list here for you of things I need done, as if the ultimate divinity doesn't already know. You know, Pythagoras said to his students, the Pythagoreans, never pray for what you want. Just affirm that the universe already knows what you need. 
problem with asking for what you want is you might get it. And it's what the ego wants. And the ego is not the truth of, of who you are. It's very fear-based. Often what the ego wants is not this and not that and not something else. But this is why we're in pain. This is why our lives often don't work because we're all focused on what we're trying to avoid. You know, nobody ever hit the bullseye by trying to avoid missing the target. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. All right. Absolutely. Well, all right. Good. We're so busy. So, yeah, well, this gets talked about in many, in many spiritual traditions in different ways, especially in the last uh, 10 or 20 years, and many of our audience uh, members saw The Secret, which talked about a metaphysical laws, the law of attraction. And uh, it's pretty clear from these kinds of teachings that what we focus on expands. Yes, that thought directs spirit or energy. Uh, no question about it. Another way of saying this that the mystics of all traditions have said repeatedly is that capital L love, I'm not talking about emotional love now, but spiritual peace, and love, this meditative, contemplative, alternative state where you can hear the higher self intuitively, that this level of consciousness is the truth of who we are. This opens us to the essence of what we really want to know. If we're in real danger in this physical world, the fight-or-flight mechanism, which is the ego, kicks in. And if the danger is real, clear and present, fine, let the ego run things. But as soon as we're on the other side of the danger and we've survived, now it's time to close your eyes, breathe. (laughs) You can learn to do this with your eyes open, too. Breathe and relax and wait for it. You know, be patient. Let that higher self come in. And so this is often called mindfulness. It's the idea of uh, eyes open meditation or contemplation, learning to pay attention, to focus your awareness. That love is consciousness is a major breakthrough for most people. And that it is magnetic. It speaks I'm trying to speak directly to the law of attraction. What is attractive about love? It's magnetic. Consciousness is magnetic. So you can say what you put your attention on expands or thought directs energy. But basically in a spiritual plane, the polarities are just the opposite of what they are in the physical, where opposites attract and like repels like. Well, that's a reflection. It's backwards. On the spiritual plane, like attracts like, and opposites repel. So love attracts love. This is karma. This is treat others the way you want to be treated. It's a simple law of spiritual magnetism. And to understand love is not only radiatory, not only does your love radiate, it's magnetic. And it attracts what you put your attention on. So if you're always focused on what you don't want in order to avoid it, the irony is you end up creating the very thing you were trying to avoid. 
Yes, we've said that in psychology for decades, but we didn't really quite understand the mechanism of it until the spiritual conversation came into the picture. Exactly, because we're still in the empirical science working off the mistaken concept, I believe, mistaken concept, that consciousness springs from brain chemistry. Now, there is a chicken and the egg. Brain chemistry affects awareness, and awareness or consciousness affects brain chemistry. So what's the prime mover? Well, a mystic would tell you consciousness is the prime mover. And a meditator who's got a few years under their belts will tell you that they're aware of the fact, it's occurred to them, that their consciousness exists independently of their physicalness. And so consciousness is the essence, the truth. And when prophets have talked about this in the past, they called it love. But too many people think they're talking about emotions. So love your enemy doesn't make any sense to people. (laughs) They They think Christ said, you know, He's talking about emotional love, your enemy, and in fact, he's talking about the magnetic nature of consciousness. You know, if you love your enemy, that means don't frighten them and don't be afraid of them. Don't bring fear into this. Practice kindness and respect and consideration, and all of a sudden, they're not your enemy anymore. It sounds naive to frightened people, but... Those, again, are people that need to deal with their personal fears. So much of what passes for politics on the left and the right are just frightened people living fearful lives. There are very important issues of social justice to be concerned about. That's why I always loved working at KPFK, because we're working to make a better world, to create social justice. and. We should be passionate about that and work for that. But we're not limited to a political bipolar spectrum in our views of redeeming this world. We can do it spiritually. We can do it with the magnetic nature of consciousness, essentially just learning to be smart and pulling on this wisdom, this capital W, this ageless wisdom, this ancient wisdom from time out of mind, from before the prophets, from before the religions. Okay, will you hear that little music sneaking under us, Michael Banner? We're going to take a quick break and come right back. We have a lot of calls waiting for you, and uh, our conversation with Michael Benner today continues here on KPFK Inner Vision. I'm your host, Nita Valens, right after this. You are tuned in and turned on. This is Intervision with Nita Valens. KPFK. kpfk If you'd like to join the conversation I'm having with Michael Benner today, my special guest, 
who's on Maui now, used to be with us here at KPFK for many years. We're talking about discovery, personal development, consciousness, and we're going to start with Susie. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I love the program. Michael, is he's just wonderful. He is indeed. Thank you. Mahalo. Oh, it's been so enlightening and so enjoy, so enjoyable. And I wanted to ask you a question, Michael. How can we get rid of or eliminate repetitive, learned, negative thinking that just seems to seep in? And I don't know if it's seeping into the unconscious or into the conscious or even why it's seeping in, but how can we, can I say, consciously uh, eliminate that or work on that? What can one do? Wonderful question, thanks. Uh, I think to recognize that negative thinking is fear-based, and fear is always a product of things that are not understood, uh, not known. I hesitate to use a word like ignorance, but often it is a matter of ignoring the truth that's right in front of us. Because we have a very bizarre, um, super ironic tendency to believe that fear makes us safe and that if we allowed ourselves to feel safe we would put ourselves in danger now that on the surface makes sense but <laughs> but if you think about it a minute it couldn't right. be more backward topsy-turvy inside out and upside down I'm going to create safety by being afraid because to allow myself to feel safe is way too frightening until we face that and look at the fear and the confusion in our negativity and I would say everything that hurts us emotionally. I could even make an argument for physical pain being rooted in fear. So the antidote is understanding. This is the secret of mental health. Why does talk therapy work? Why does hypnotherapy work? Why does a hug and somebody whispering in your ear, everything's going to be okay. Why does that work? Because it takes the fear away. It causes us to feel safe. And then our resistance to love and light is lessened, and the love and light comes in, and we start saying things like, oh, I see. <laughs> I get it. It was here all along. And, and we can now substitute positive cycles of love and understanding, notice how those feed each other. A loving countenance promotes understanding. And as you understand, you can take a breath, relax, and be more peaceful and loving. So you've got this beautiful upward spiral of love and understanding promoting itself higher and higher as a replacement for the downward vicious cycle of anxiety and confusion or Fear and ignorance is probably the that, best way to see. Michael, that is so beautifully spoken, and I hope people can hear this and are listening because you just you just nailed that. I thought and, so too. <laughs> Good. I thought I mean, so too, all, Susie. <laughs> don't, we all suffer. I mean, I suffer from anxiety, and I am trying to be to find out why I even have anxiety. And to try to eliminate- okay, Susie, I'm going to stop you for a second because one of the things I wanted to add into this, being a therapist, I can't help myself, sure. is that what happens with anxiety and worry and depressed moods and all of these kinds of things oh. yeah. is that they are very often multi-generational. Yeah. 
like we're just following what we learned in the family. And then what happens is, you know, when we are, you know, traumatic attachment, that's a whole other conversation has to do with this, because when we are part of a family where there's a multi-generational history of traumatic attachments and there's all these things going on, then these become sort of like a coping mechanism or a coping style that we grow up with. So, you know, I see people that go to therapy and meditate and hypnotherapy, which Michael and I both do, and we all this stuff. And then under a very stressful period of time, there will be like they didn't learn any of that because then we backslide into those old strategies that helped us cope growing up in the family. So it takes becoming aware uh, oftentimes of what are those original traumatic attachments? What what happened when uh, you were a little girl? You don't have to answer that, but I'm just saying that sometimes <laughs> okay. it's uh, okay. that's part of the picture. Thank you for your call. What do you think, Michael? Well, I also want to thank Susie for the call, for the question, and for the generous compliment as well. I think that what you're saying is exactly true. I'm a big believer in therapy. I think people are crazy if they don't do it, uh, that people will invest $40,000 in a car, but wince when you say $100 an hour I, uh, uh, or more. <laughs> I think we're worth it. Uh, of course. You know, I, and I, I think really, that, the, that, the, that you're worth it, like if it's Susie or whoever. You're well, worth well, it. Yeah. The question is not, is the therapy worth it? The question is, are you, as the client, the student, worth it? And, of course. Exactly. It, you know, how do you put a price on, on uh, feeling safe in the world? A love is based on that. Happiness is based on that. Contentment is based, all of that, on feeling safe in the world. The only thing I would add to what you say, and, and I'm, I'm going to say this because I have so much respect for your audience, Nita, and for KPFK listeners. I think we can, we can add to what you've stated about the family and learned behavior and the way society reinforces it by suggesting that all fear and confusion, that vicious cycle that I talked about of anxiety and confusion or fear and ignorance is rooted in what we don't know about ourselves. Mm, love that. People say the ultimate fear is the fear of death. I disagree. I think the biggest fear, and I'm not the first person to say this, sages and yogis and mystics have always said, our biggest fear is being alive. It's not dying, it's living fully and completely because we don't know the person that's doing the living. Mm -hmm. We don't know what we want, so we have a problem deciding what to do. But those two questions beg the primary existential question, who is this I, who is me, that's doing the wanting and doing the doing. And if I'm looking at fingerprint evidence and DNA proof of my uniqueness, how would copying other people help me at all to understand myself? How would judging others? 
be even relevant to understanding myself. And again, where do you go to understand yourself except to some sort of counseling, whether it's psychological, philosophical, spiritual, whatever. I, you know, I, again, I'm a big promoter of meditation, contemplation, deep relaxation. I think we can be our own gurus, and we can tap into not only the kingdom within, but the master within. But we need teachers. Yes. There, there have to be times that you go out and say, I am worth this much money. I'm going to put this several thousand dollars into my spiritual education. And I'm going to find women and men like you, Nita, and the tens of thousands of others in this country who've dedicated their lives to helping people be free from fear and confusion. And the truth is, and I, I shout this from the mountaintop, the truth is the more you know about yourself, the more you know the truth of who you are, the more you're going to like yourself, the more you're going to love yourself, and the more love you'll have available for everyone and everything that you encounter. You know, that was so beautiful, I almost couldn't even talk for a second. <laughs> so we'll pick up Dan in Anaheim. Welcome. Hey, uh, I, well, I had one question, but it got answered, so I, but I got another one. Great. Um, what would you say is the best way to handle dealing with the ego? Because, I mean, sometimes that can get out of hand, and I, I guess because I, I've been working on myself a lot, my inner self and everything. Um, some of the information that I really came across that I really liked came from a guy named Dr. Robert Anthony. Uh, he teaches a lot, of, a lot of his stuff is very similar to The Secret. And, you know, about living in the now and being aware and what, you you know, taking action and choosing. And, uh, you know, I guess being aware or having that awareness is a great thing, but in some ways it kind of creates a little bit of a problem because I don't know how to totally deal with the ego sometimes. And I need to do that better. In, In Western mysticism, there's a concept called the chemical wedding, as in alchemy or the spiritual betrothal. Uh, There's actually two. The primary spiritual betrothal is where the soul marries the persona or the egoic nature. It's actually more like, in my mind, a big brother, little brother, or big sister, little sister relationship. And basically the ego's job is to assert itself when physical danger is real. So its job basically is to ride shotgun, and you don't let it drive the car unless you're really in great danger, right? I mean, real, clear, and present danger, not anxiety, but real danger. So the ego's job is to ride shotgun and to look over our shoulder, but it needs to be maintained by awareness that that's only a part of who we are. It comes out of our ancestors natural selection, we are the offspring of people who are really good at fight or flight. Uh, We're survivors. Uh, I think of my ego as a almost helpless, very frightened part of myself, like a little boy that I comfort. And I, I treat my ego the way I would treat a child after a bad nightmare. 
I give it a hug, I tell it everything's going to be okay. You know, you have to talk to yourself and just be clear of who's talking to whom, right? And I think that little brother relationship or to... I know in the East they talk about ego death, but they don't mean that. (laughs) Not literally. Yeah, sometimes you need an ego. This is the temptation of the Christ and, and other masters who have incarnated, and even they had ego problems. And, you know, the temptation of the Christ, for example, that's portrayed as Satan, but it's the ego saying, hey, they think you're a king. Let's get a palace and some girls and and some horses and, and some decent shoes. What's going on here? And uh, so we've all got one. We just need to keep it in its place. I say treat it with love and kindness and help it feel safe. Let's go to Shelley in Pasadena. Thank you so much for your call, Dan. Oh, thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Welcome. I, thank you. I, I just have one quick question. I'm I'm pretty new at meditation. I don't know if I've really meditated, but when I do try to go to that I guess, relaxed, restful, peaceful, quiet place, I find that my eyes will move erratically just everywhere, all over the place. And I don't, and I did a little bit of reading or research, just minute amount, and I, I started running into things about it being trance and not meditation. And so I'm curious if, if I have actually really meditated or not. Yeah, my, uh, Nita might answer this differently, uh, but my sense is that you may be going too deep. You may be going beyond the alpha brainwave level into theta, and that's likely REM activity. I couldn't say for sure without watching your eyes behind the closed eyelids. Um, it, maybe. it does feel like that. I, mean, I know what REM is, but the odd thing is that it's immediate. I, it's, um, I mean, I can close my eyes and immediately they will, you know, I have awareness that... I'm are you awake. sitting, Shelly, are you sitting up or lying down when you meditate? Um, I'd say sitting up, mm-hmm. not lying down. Okay, good. Mainly. Yeah, I just think you need to practice and it's probably just, are you getting, is this being accompanied, this uh, REM activity by... Uh, strong visual, are you getting hypnagogic or, or vivid imagery? No, I, I, not at all. Then it just could be not REM activity. It may actually just be muscular spasms, a way that your body is releasing physical tension. You may be a very visual person. I definitely have tension and anxiety, and I do have a sense of um, maybe more calm afterward. But I just thought maybe I'm not um, reaching the right place. Try a progressive muscular relaxation, PMR, where you begin your meditation in a sitting position, as Anita has suggested, by tightening your feet tighter and tighter. Don't hurt yourself, but tighter and tighter, and then let go all at once, and then go to the calves. Tighten, tighten, and then release all at once and go to the knees and the thighs and work progressively all the way up to your shoulders and then down your arms and then finish with the head. Even if you think you're just making it up, how do I tighten the muscles in my head? Well, pretend. And then relax and breathe. 
and see okay. if that process well, that, yeah. doesn't That help. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. I did. I think I did um, one time a, a hypnosis tape, and I do recall them going through the, you know, body parts like yeah, that. Yeah, body relax is it's called. It's a very good technique, especially for beginners. Okay. There was uh, there was one. You're very welcome. There was a meditation. Uh, one of my meditation teachers uh, would uh, tap me while I was uh, sitting in meditation. He would tap me in the area of the forehead called the third eye, mm-hmm. and I would do that same thing. And I I thought I was in another universe. And he said, "Oh, you've gone into samadhi." You know this idea of emotional release and tapping acupressure, acupuncture points, tapping instead of shiatsu on those meridians, uh, has developed itself into this whole field called emotional release therapy. And um, when you combine it with well-written positive scripts, it can be very effective. Uh, Whatever works, again, explore all of the different psychotechnologies. Absolutely. Okay, let's go to Judy in downtown L.A. Welcome. Nope. Oh, we lost Judy. Okay, Judy, call us back, 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. We'll pick you right up. Meanwhile, we'll go to Jim calling from, oh, Hawaii. Hey, Jim. Good afternoon. How are you folks? Good. Aloha, Jim. Hey, aloha, Michael. Long time no talk. Where in Hawaii are you, bro? I used to call you from Terminal Island a long time ago. Where in Hawaii are you? I'm in Maui, just down the road from Michael's place. Oh, how funny. <laughs> well, you meet here in L.A. on my program. What is your question for Michael, Jim? Well, and I'd like it's a kind of a response. Uh, from what all I've heard, uh, I'd like to ask you uh, if you've heard what the world needs most to know. What does the world need most to know? That is your question? Yeah. And and the answer is to that which the world needs most to know is that men are the sons of God. And through faith, they can actually realize and daily experience this ennobling truth. It's like our basic cosmic identity. Men, not women? I'm just kidding. Well, it's generic. (laughs) Men includes... I know, I know. I'm just just messing with you. we're, We're sons and daughters of God. I get it. And uh, uh, Okay, well, thank you for that. Do you want to comment on that, Michael? Well, the implications uh, is if Jim had more time, I'm sure he could tell us about the implications of that. What does that mean to be in the image of the Creator? But the, I think the basic problem we have spiritually is we, in virtually all religions, think of God as a separated form that's very far away rather than the mystical concept of a totality that includes all things. And includes us as well, like there is God within all of us. How could anything be outside of God? Well, and even now the work of Greg Braden and Bruce Lipton, they're looking at the concept of God in our cellular cellular structure, in our DNA. So we got Judy back. So welcome, Judy. Did you have a question? Uh, Yeah, I actually had a question on... Um, regarding, I don't know, if, how can meditation help, like, someone in recovery um, after coming home from, like, a rehab? And, I mean, does it help or, I mean, because... Oh, yes. Absolutely. I mean, I, well, I, mean, I tried it, but it's just, I find it, um, I me mean, personally, 
I, I don't know. I don't know if it's like not being patient or, or maybe the types of meditation that I'm doing or, but it's just, I just don't feel like it's, like it's working for me. And I hear so many great things from other people that I, you know, I would like it to work for me. You know? and, well, Judy, I want you to be a little more patient with yourself. I'm glad you revealed this because, um, I am told by people in program that in the books, uh, in the literature, it, it does actually say prayer and meditation. So, um, you know, sometimes it, it helped me many years ago to, to have tapes and to have a teacher now and then and have some direction. So, um, so if you need any resources in that regard, you know, let me know. I'll, I'll be glad to help you with that because I think it's really important. I think it's really important for you to have a meditation practice being in recovery. And thank you for mentioning it. That's an important concept. I want to go to William in Long Beach. You have an interesting question. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Nita. Hello, Michael. Um, I want to ask you, is there a difference between self-confidence and arrogance? And can you touch on the concept of forgiveness as when someone... I may have, I may feel that someone has done me wrong. Uh, I may feel in the right, and they may feel they're in the right, and there's hurt there. And that's that's my question for this afternoon. All right, well, that's a couple of questions. Yeah, um, I love it. Let me do the first part first. Arrogance is the lower self going beyond confidence. Arrogance is actually fear-based. You know, people with big egos are not people who know themselves well. People with big egos are faking it. They're terrified that you're going to see how confused they really are. Uh, this is, again, as backwards as the idea that fear will make you safe and feeling safe will put you in danger. It's just how mixed up we are. By the way, we need to remember we just got here. We... we by all accounts, have only been vertical for three million years. We just recently stood up, and we're, we're growing, we're evolving, and yeah, we're plugged into inordinate wisdom, to magnificence, but this fear and anxiety and confusion is like a filter. It stands in the way. It creates a resistance to understanding the magnificence of who we are. As Jim was saying, sons and daughters of the Most High. Well, that's terrifying. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, when they talk about being God-fearing, that doesn't really mean be frightened of God. It comes from the word awe, as in awesome or awful. It's a word that has multiple meanings, some positive, some negative. So we need to recognize that in, in many ways, Fear and ignorance is the enemy. That's what evil is, is ignorance and confusion. So the antidote is love and understanding. And we have to have, as you've said, some sort of meditative practice. Remember, you don't have to calm your thoughts to meditate. You meditate in order to learn to calm your thoughts and your emotional feelings. It is a practice. And it does take time because we've been trained to believe we're in great danger. If you start watching TV news, you'll be convinced you're in great danger, that terrorists are everywhere, 
and there's always somebody called them who's out to get us. Oh, and by the way, you go for a commercial break, and here's the product that's going to resolve all of the fear that doesn't really exist. That's an illusion in the first place. Arrogance is all of that fear pumped up into a false sense of self. True self-confidence, if it's the higher self, is kind and humble, uh, very forgiving. That leads into the second part of your question. The higher self understands that if we're all part of one thing, judge ourselves by the same standards that we use when we judge other people. So if you expect to be forgiven, and I would say by yourself, but others would say by God or whatever, if you expect to be forgiven, you have to forgive. You'll end up judging yourself by the same standard that you apply to other people. And uh, again, this is found in religion, but it's separated into God, who is other than you, will judge you, who are not God, you're a bad sinner. In fact, it's just different levels of the same thing. The egoic self is arrogant because it's full of its self as a false self, and there's a higher self or the soul on its own plane, in form, indwelling, but also above and free of form. And then, of course, there is this Godhead or this sense of ultimate divinity. Mystics talk about infinite layers in a hierarchy of love, not a hierarchy of power as we think of it in the material world, but power as love, which is a very different kind of power, of course. It's a life-affirming power. And imagine a hierarchy, infinite layers or strata of a spiritual hierarchy and this trinity of from the bottom up the ego, the soul, and the ultimate divinity are just the three main outlines of this infinite level through which we are evolving. Again, not only as physical creatures, but more importantly, our consciousness and our awareness is evolving. And uh, at a hyperbolic rate, so we're about to see a major breakthrough. People talk about, you know, the end times as if that's a bad thing. That's the end of war. That's the end of hunger. That's an end of fear. It's a wonderful thing that we're moving toward. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your call, William. Michael, we are coming to the end of our time together. Thank you so much for being with me today, Michael Benner. And I'm sorry we couldn't get to all your calls, but you can find Michael at... This segment has been from the Nita Valens radio program on KPFK-FM in Los Angeles, broadcast live on June 14th, 2011, at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. For more information on classes, coaching, and counseling, visit my website at theagelesswisdom.com. That's the W's dot theagelesswisdom.com. Leave me a voice message anytime, 24-7 at 818-569-3017. In Los Angeles, that's 569-3017 in the 818 area code. And though I live in Maui, I'll return your call. I do telephone counseling, Skype counseling, and webinars every Sunday afternoon. You can also email me at my initials, mb at theagelesswisdom.com.
Thank you for listening. Thanks, of course, to Nita and the KPFK production staff. And aloha from Maui.